Translation, in my opinion, is, is the foundation of missions. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast, brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Rich Radowski. And I'm Emily Wilson. Whether it's on a podcast platform or on lbt.org, we're happy you joined us. For those of you who like to subscribe to podcasts to get the latest, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or on Audible to hear the latest and greatest. And we always love your feedback, so feel free to leave us a rating or reach out to us at info at lbt.org. So Emily, can you imagine what it would be like if you only had half of your Bible? How would you feel? <laughs> It'd be so hard to understand what's happening. You know, there's so many references, I think, that Jesus makes to the Old Testament. And I don't know, like the Psalms are just so beautiful. So it's like, you know, of course you want to hear the gospel, but I don't want to give up on my Psalms or, you know, just hearing the the beauty of Genesis and what life was like before the fall. Yep. I don't know. That, that yeah, would be absolutely. It's it's hard to imagine. And the folks we're going to talk with today work with Aramaic Bible translation. And it's really an interesting story because they've got ancient scriptures, which they use, but they have more recently done new translations, but only have the New Testament done and have been working and struggling to finish the Bible. So there's a, a lot of stuff going on there. And right now, the access to, oh, now we understand Scripture, but still only partial is kind of where they're at right now. Right. And millions of Aramaic speakers need God's Word. I mean, like you said, that it's the partial and how language changes over the years. And so today's episode, Executive Director of the Aramaic Bible Translators Organization and Lutheran Bible Translators Missionary Rob Hilbert, he shares the story of five Aramaic language communities that need the full Bible. During the thousands of years that have passed, they've experienced persecution and separation from their homeland and their communities. But we really just have this amazing inspiration in these language communities that God's word provides hope and a connection to their heritage. And just really hope that you are inspired as you hear about the Aramaic language communities and Rob Hilbert's story. Today, we welcome to the podcast Rob Hilbert, the Executive Director for Aramaic Bible Translation and a Lutheran Bible Translators Missionary. Great to have you with us today, Rob. Thank you, Rich. It's wonderful to be here. So we are going to learn some about you and ABT. Tell us some about your background, what you did before you got involved in Bible Translation Ministry, how you got involved and with LBT, some of your other work. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah I grew up outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to Valparaiso University in Indiana. After that, I uh, joined the Peace Corps and had a desire to serve. And really, I, I don't know why, but I, I just felt this inspiration to be involved in, in literacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was sent there to work in natural resource management, but was hoping that I could I could be involved with um, teaching people to read because I knew that the, the literacy rate was very low in, in the, the country that I was headed to, which is Mali in mm -hmm. West Africa. So I ended up uh, living in a small village for a little over two years there. And uh, I did end up getting involved with literacy through uh, USAID. Uh, they had a program there. And so basically what we do is just hold classes at night 
and uh, use the materials that they provided to do that. And it was a lot of fun and really uh, began my interest in, in teaching literacy in um, the local language in particular. In that uh, region, it was a language called Bambara. And so I learned to uh, value teaching and also then uh, speaking the local language or the heart language of the people there. And uh, that really made an impact on me and also helped me to live there and, and succeed in a foreign culture. So I came back after the Peace Corps to the Chicago area and uh, I got I just uh, started working and had a, an office job, met my wife, uh, Mikal, and uh, we got married. I became a, a training specialist. So that was my my profession before becoming a missionary. Mm-hmm. And we were going to a, uh, a church in ta- in the Tampa Bay area. So we'd moved to, to uh, Tampa, Florida, uh, not not long after we were married. We were both living there. And I was working there and our church had sponsored Paul and Allie Federwitz at one point. Uh, so we were receiving their newsletter. And uh, I was already familiar with Lutheran Bible translators a little bit uh, before then because my wife, Mikal's uh, dad, had uh, served on the board, mm-hmm. and he's he's a pastor and a professor. And so he had talked about it a little bit with us, but it was really because of the Federowitz's newsletters that I, I believed that we could actually be missionaries and, uh, and that it might be really uh, in an interesting way to serve and that we might have the capacity to serve overseas mm-hmm. because Mikal uh, grew up as a missionary overseas and uh, I had my experience overseas and we both felt like we could handle it and it was something that appealed to us. So we started pursuing it then and eventually, you know, just went through the, the process. Uh, we attended uh, linguistics classes at the, the school that was then known as GIAL in Dallas. And so I, I studied uh, linguistics and so did my wife. And then we went to Sierra Leone uh, for our first stop uh, during our, our story. And our time in Sierra Leone was, was very interesting. It was, it, you know, it had a lot of highs and lows, yeah. um, actually, because when we arrived there, Ebola had been in, in active transmission, actually, little did we know at oh. the time. But it was it was actually there and was uh, being transmitted from person to person, but it it hadn't been widely reported and hadn't really been noticed yeah. by the medical community yet. So it just got out of, out of control and out of hand. And we didn't expect that to happen at all. We thought it would be like uh, what usually happens or yeah. happened in the past with, with Ebola was that it would, it would just sort of peter out and not spread into the big cities. But it ended up uh, actually doing that. So we we do, did have some experience with uh, isolating ourselves uh, due to an, uh, an epidemic um, yeah. prior to COVID. So we we did experience that. We did I- isolate ourselves. We, we wouldn't leave the house except for getting food and, and going to work and kept the kids indoors for the last uh, month or so that we were there. Uh, eventually, we, we just had to leave uh, primarily because, not because we were afraid of getting Ebola, because it's it's actually much more difficult to get, um, even though it has a, a higher mortality rate right. than COVID. It's it's harder to get it. You have to physically touch somebody to to pass it on, or or touch their you know uh, something that's contaminated with it. 
But it was uh, basically because the hospital system, the medical system had had shut down and yeah. it was no longer functioning. So we were were on one of the last flights out uh, before they had to have special uh, diplomat flights that were very expensive. So we got on one of the last planes and were not sure what we were going to do after that. We just decided to go back to GIAL at that point in, in Texas and uh, finish up our master's. And we decided together with LBT, after a lot of prayer and speaking with our family and, and others at LBT, that we would return if the medical system was back where it was before Ebola. And then also if we would have uh, certain things that we needed, like we needed a, a schooling option for the kids. We needed right. you know, decent internet to be able to teach them. And, and so we needed certain things to be in place and it just wasn't looking like that was going to happen anytime soon. So then eventually, I believe it was you who came and talked with us and suggested uh, Botswana. And we went and, uh, and visited Botswana and made the decision with LBT to eventually become missionaries serving in Botswana. So we were there for a little less than two years, and we, we really loved Botswana, and especially the last place that we were at, uh, Mound Botswana. Was, that's kind of when we hit our, our stride yeah. on the mission field and really enjoyed living there and enjoyed the work that we were doing and the community. But uh, my, my father had some health issues. He had a, a severe seizure, and he'd already had a, a series of strokes. And uh, my mom uh, just couldn't really handle the situation anymore. And I wanted to come back and, and see him before he passed away. He, cu- he kept going. He was put in a, a care facility and kept surviving despite a lot of setbacks. Uh, mm-hmm. But eventually he passed away. And by that point, we had just realized that we, we weren't going to be able to return to the mission field uh, because my, my family just needed us there in the U.S. And it, it ju- they weren't really open to us returning, and uh, it would have been very difficult to turn our backs on that situation. So we ended up uh, not going back and weren't sure what was uh, going to, to happen. But eventually, LBT came up with an, another idea. I, I think it, it might have been David Snyder who had this idea, or at least it went through him. And so he had been serving on the board, ABT, and came to me and asked if I would help out with ABT. And uh, he did not know at the time that I actually ethnically am Assyrian, or I'm half Assyrian, which is one of the language groups that we work with. Um, so my grandparents are both spoke Assyrian and uh, came from that region. And they left during the, the genocide, which is, you know, a whole another story but yeah. but yeah it was uh, really a a, a, um, a blessing to be asked it was, it was very surprising that this would be my, our next opportunity with LBT since it, it's so uh, meaningful to me um, and so I'm, I've been very blessed to be able to work with ABT from that point forward yeah it's really a it sort of um, illustrates a couple of things too that at that point where you couldn't go back to Botswana, there's this feeling like there's a mission field that we're used to that we can't go back to. And then as it turned out, uh, there's a mission field everywhere, right? And That's so true. There's, yep. there's one here yep. in the United States too. And yeah, David served on the board and connected me with their their leadership at ABT. And we started talking and right off the bat, they were looking for a solution in their leadership. 
and had some different ideas. And I said, well, listen, I can offer you a person that, you know, would have the skills and abilities to do uh, what you're looking to do here in your executive director role or advise your executive director or whatever you're, you're wanting to do. And again, there was a there was quite a bit of conversation with them that was kind of an out of the box idea to them. And actually to them seemed too good to be true because yeah. we weren't putting a price tag on it for them or anything. And uh, right. yeah. so then it was so wonderful when I can remember the first time I talked with you about it. And and then, yeah, it was like that connection to your own family and heritage is just uh, one of those moments where you sit back and say, wow, God is always at work and putting things together. And yeah, uh, yeah, it was amazing. All of that experience that you had that you've just described for the last few minutes, you know, all finds a, a connection point there in serving in this new way. So you now serve as the executive director of of Aramaic Bible Translation. And tell us some about ABT, uh, how long it's been around, what kind of work yeah, just tell us a little bit about the organization. Yeah, so ABT has been around as an idea since the the 90s. Work actually began about a, a decade ago on the, the five language groups that we, we work in. We do use pseudonyms for the, the languages when we share the information. So yeah, we work with five different languages. Suryoyo, Maluli, Mardini, Assyrian, and Chaldean. And so each of those five has a New Testament that has been published, and they were all completed recently within the last uh, five years. Currently, each language group is working on the complete Bible. And they, they actually have uh, various other projects that they work on, like they'll take a break from the complete Bible project to finish a project that they've been working on, like uh, for Sir Yo-Yo, for example, we're almost finished with the children's Bible. And and it, de- it depends on when funding comes in. So we recently received a, a, a gift to help complete the children's Bible. And so then work began again on that. Another example would be these standalone copies of the Psalms, um, which for the three uh, Syrian languages, there was a request from the local churches there, I think it was about a year and a half ago, that we publish standalone copies of the Psalms mm-hmm. uh, so that they could use those uh, during their worship. And the, so that's another project that you know we pivoted, and then those, those language groups started uh, working on the Psalms because that's a felt need that the community requested and the, the local churches requested. So yeah, we're uh, the five language groups are working on the complete Bible translations. The projects, like I said, aren't simply complete Bible translations. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of work with partners who are involved in scripture engagement. ABT focuses on translation, but the translations, the copyrights for the translations are owned by ABT, and uh, we work with a lot of partners to use those translations in uh, different product scripture engagement products like um, the Jesus film or other films that you'll see you could that you could see on Netflix like the Gospel of uh, Mark you could watch well I don't know if in America we could watch it in um, in Chaldean but the those lang- those uh, movies are available overseas in mm-hmm. the uh, using the translations that ABT has has provided um, so uh, we work with partners to produce a lot of scripture engagement materials like that. Yeah, so that's pretty important that in the language communities you're mentioning, there are churches involved and you're you're working with them or at least hearing from them 
their needs and then responding there and networking with other kind of specialized ministries that do certain things like the recordings and the uh, movies mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I'm hearing you talk about the name of the organization is Aramaic Bible Translation. You mentioned Chaldean. You mentioned Assyrian. Mm-hmm. You know, these uh, the astute listeners may recognize some of these names from their Bible reading. Yeah. Uh, that's you know, in the later part of well, the several different parts in the uh, in the Old Testament you hear about. So are these the same people that we read about in the Bible? Yeah, so Aramaic is a language used in a few places in the Bible. It's there's a, a large section of Daniel it's uh, that uses Aramaic and it's found in Ezra and a few other places. Sometimes it's it just referring to a name in yeah. Aramaic, but uh, yeah, spread throughout the Bible. And it, it was the uh, lingua franca or language of, of wider communication for this resurrected Neo-Assyrian empire that was around almost 3,000 years ago. Okay. And so, th- but the language persisted throughout the region and it was kind of, it became the, the language of wider communication. That's why it was uh, spoken widely. And it was the language that uh, Jesus uh, spoke in and would have communicated in. So it has been around for a long time. The uh, languages that we currently work in are descendants of that language. Sure. So like uh, when I refer to Chaldean, it's called Chaldean Neo-Aramaic, okay. or and then like Assyrian is is uh, technically Assyrian Neo-Aramaic. So they're languages that are are descended from Aramaic, but Aramaic itself is no longer spoken. The, sure. the language that Jesus spoke, but actually the the one of the languages we we work in, I think it's Maluli, is considered closest to the language that Jesus would have spoken, wow. uh, Western Aramaic. That's fascinating. And so, yeah, of course, our listeners may know that language is shifting. It doesn't really take that much time. So we're talking about thousands of yeah. year old languages. Obviously, there's exactly. going to be a big thing. Anybody can just pick up a English book written like Dickens 200 years ago, and it's substantially different, uh, you know, right. language. Well, I was just going to say, also, these these language groups were were very isolated uh, yeah. from each other. So, you know, uh, people uh, probably know uh, already the history of the region is largely Christian area, Orthodox Christian for a considerable amount of time. Eventually, the region was was taken over by different empires that uh, largely spoke Arabic. And it's kind of a, a miracle that that these groups survived for as long as they did or, or have. I mean, yeah. they're, they're still speaking these languages, still Christian enclaves in in this largely uh, Muslim region. But they became very isolated from each other for thousands of years. And so although they started out speaking Aramaic, yeah, the languages had a chance to evolve on their own, partially because of that isolation, but also as a way of maintaining their culture, their heritage, their religion. A lot of these groups continue to use their heart languages rather than using Arabic. Well, in a lot of cases, they do know both languages out of necessity, but it's important to these groups to to maintain their their heritage and their language. Yeah, and when I think about, you know, Assyrian or Chaldean, whether it's the same or just, you know, kind of related, but there's there's these prophecies in uh, the Old Testament, Isaiah, particularly about them specifically becoming you know, God's people, (laughs) which would have been unheard of. And here's the fulfillment and even to the modern day. True. Yeah, very true. Yeah. It's what they were one of the first groups to develop a Christian church, an official one. 
I mean, I think it's back in the fourth century or fifth century that that came about. So yes, and you're exactly right. Of course, the Syrians were were kind of the bad guys in the yeah in the Old Testament, but yeah. And uh, so talk a little bit about the the history of some of the churches. Okay, sure. So each language has its own kind of history. First, uh, I'll start with Maluli. A lot of these languages are are centered around a a big town or a a region. And so this one, Maluli, is is centered around a town located northeast of Damascus in Syria. The Christian church is primarily Syrian Orthodox and then also Catholic. And so... You know, I find it very remarkable that they've they've retained their faith and culture, despite being surrounded by all this turmoil and being the uh, minorities, the minority group within Syria. Uh, but uh, part of the reason why they've they've been able to do it is because there's two important monasteries there that are very ancient, and those have uh, and we've we're connected with all with different monasteries related to these languages, and that's kind of how we uh, review our the materials, it's uh, using using these monasteries. Mm-hmm. And so that's how uh, Malulis maintained it, the language and, and the culture and, the, and uh, their faith. It's through these important institutions uh, that are there, the church and the monasteries. They form their, their community based on, on their faith there. And then there's Mardini, uh, that's based in Southeast Turkey and Northern Syria, a little more spread out than Maluli. There's the More Gabriel Monastery, which is kind of its its epicenter. We also work do a lot of work with them, and our, we have translators throughout uh, that area that help us with our translations. There's also a lot of Armenian and Assyrian spoken in that region, so um, there are quite a few Christians in southeastern Turkey, and uh, they have uh, they're home to the oldest Syriac Orthodox monastery in the world, hmm. uh, still functional. And then there's uh, Suryoyo, that's in southeast Turkey, northern Syria. It's also sometimes called Central Neo-Aramaic. And that one uh, has, has predominantly has Eastern Christians and, and the Syriac Orthodox Church uh, speaking that language and um, are using it predominantly. That uh, language evolved from Eastern Aramaic in the uh, Tur-Abdin region in southeastern Turkey. And um, there's quite a few uh, speakers of Suryoyo. A lot of them joined the uh, Syrian diaspora during the war and has, uh, I mean, well, actually that accelerated. It was it was kind of a typical thing for uh, Christians to leave the region and go to Europe. But the war in Syria accelerated that. It's uh, widely spoken in the region uh, despite that. Uh, it has many distinct dialogues, uh, but it has about 20,000 speakers. And I think of the Syrian languages, that one's probably the biggest, but it's widely spoken uh, throughout the world, probably has 40,000 to 100,000 speakers, some of whom speak it as a second language, but um, still very widely spoken in the diaspora. And then there's Chaldean also known as Neo Chaldean Neo-Aramaic. And that one is uh, related to Assyrian, not uh, as related to uh, the Aramaic or, or the, um, the Syrian languages. Yeah. But some scholars consider Assyrian and Chaldean to be the same language, just dialects of the same language, but they're really not mutually intelligible. And yeah. uh, our, our translators would obviously very much yeah, disagree I'm sure they'll have something to say about, about that. <laughs> 
but uh, it's Chaldean is uh, spoken primarily in northern Iraq and southeast Turkey. And so the Assyrians living in northern Iraq have a lot of autonomy. So they actually have it guaranteed in their, the new constitution since 2005 that what they call it uh, Syriac, yeah. um, but uh, in the constitution, but it's guaranteed as an official language in the constitution, and it is mandated that it's used in schools in northern Iraq. So that language could be, you, you could be speaking Assyrian and say, I'm speaking Assyriac language, or you could be speaking Chaldean. It depends on the town okay. that, you're, that you're living in, really, in northern Iraq. But, um, but yeah, that language, those languages are protected and uh, have over a million speakers, and the uh, church is uh, evolved from the the Church of the East historically. That was the name, I think, mm-hmm. um, and now it's it's kind of divided into different groups, different churches. There's the Assyrian Church of the East that's uh, pretty prominent there. I think it, ha- it has close to half a million members. And then uh, my parents or uh, my grandparents became Presbyterians uh, thanks to missionaries. My my grandmother was kind of from the Armenia area. It was all kind of crumbling at the time. The empires weren't really existent like they used to be. So it's hard to describe uh, where they where they were living. But they were around this town called Ermia. And uh, that's where my grandfather lived. And so and, and today that's in uh, modern day Iran, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, all of these groups were targeted in the early 20th century during the, uh, the genocide, which occurred during the aftermath of the of World War One, and mm-hmm. so huge groups of people were massacred and had to flee the area. You know, I've heard stories my, my whole life about family members who were lost, and I won't go into that now, it's, they're long stories, but yeah. uh, eventually, you know, my, my own grandparents ended up uh, coming to the United States and, and met, and that's how, so they ended up meeting in Chicago, but had long, uh, long journeys to get there and uh, and find each other. and But unfortunately, they had kind of this this outlook on their language where, where they didn't think very highly of it, and okay. uh, maybe because there weren't very many Assyrian speakers in Chicago at the time, but they didn't think highly of their culture. They, they kind of felt really uh, down on their culture at the time, which is really sad. I, I think it's a, a consequence of having to leave and yeah. And uh, almost being wiped out completely. Sure. So they did not emphasize it to my mom or to my uncle, and uh, so neither one of them can can speak it, unfortunately. But yeah, that's not unlike other cultures, like people coming from Greece or or Italy or Germany, who might have made their children learn the language and spoke it within their house in the United States. Even didn't happen for my family, unfortunately, which which is too bad because I would have loved to have been able to speak Assyrian. Yeah. So, yeah, and I imagine there's some amount of, of a trauma that comes with the, the way everybody got here. But I also, so you mentioned yeah. several kind of Middle Eastern locations, yet the work of ABT is largely carried out outside of that region. So tell right. us a little bit about that. Right. So we work with uh, translators. The head translators of the projects are based in the United States. Many of them have PhDs and and do work with have worked in the past or currently work with universities. So they are uh, based in the U.S., but travel uh, back to the Middle East quite a bit for community testing and then uh, also to work with translators there. Uh, So because of 
because of the internet and and Skype and uh, the ability to carry on virtually, we're able to do it over many, con- you know, despite the, the separation uh, geographically. But unfortunately, due to COVID, the community testing did not take place last year. So that's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now is, yeah. is trying to maintain contact and uh, a relationship with those communities, despite not being able to visit. So usually for the, the Syrian languages, one individual uh, travels there twice a year and meets with those community members. This individual already has a lot of connections there, knows a lot of people, and visits the, the different monasteries that I mentioned and works with them on community testing and translation. So the translators themselves actually reside in Syria. And then he, that individual, is a, the head translator and also does translation and kind of divides up the work amongst them. Uh, and then there's the Mardini translator is also based in the U.S., the head translator. And then the Maluli head translator is based in Syria. And then uh, for a Syrian and well, for a Syrian, we have a large diaspora of Syrians in California. And that is where the two translators for that project are based. And so they do community testing with within the diaspora yeah. in California. And then also work with others in in the U.S. And Chaldean then is based in the Detroit area, where there's also a large diaspora of Chaldean speakers. Yeah. So for these different language communities, there are church bodies or consumers of the the products of the translation, both in the Middle East and in the United States as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Yep. A lot of support comes from uh, churches in the United States uh, through prayer and some finances. But when the uh, products are the scripture engagement products and the, the Bibles are published and distributed, they're used uh, throughout the world. And actually, because ABT uses, uh, owns the, the copyright, um, one thing that we have, have pledged to do with the, the translated scripture is put it online for free. Yeah. So uh, you can go to a website like uh, Scripture Earth and it can be accessed there or, you know, the Bible app that everybody has on their phones. Yeah. Uh, you can find the Assyrian translation on that. Uh, I think we're, there's some issues with the font, so it's it's not perfect right now, but um, it can be viewed there and read to you uh, so you can access an audio version on your phone, which is oh. amazing for for meeting, uh, for reaching people throughout the, the diaspora and throughout the world. Yeah. So these are you know, all language communities with uh, long-standing Christian churches, and I assume some sort of scripture they've used before. What is ABT and the language communities hoping to accomplish with updated translations? Right. So the uh, as I was describing these languages, I called a lot of the Neo-Aramaics. Um, so the, these are considered newer languages, and they're not mutually intelligible with the older versions of the, the languages. So people can't really understand the scripture that would have existed way in the past. So what we're trying to do now is to to translate the complete Bible and other books that can that can help to reach people. This is sort of like uh, a King James English type of thing, sort of similar think, to yeah, that. I think it's similar to that, maybe even more dramatic than yeah. that. Uh, okay. Not being a speaker, I, I couldn't tell you really, but I I think it's it's harder to understand than that. It's sure. almost like it's a, a dead language used within the church, kind of like Latin would be okay. used wow. in the church. Yeah isn't widely understood except in the in the church setting. 
Now, I don't I don't know that it's that extreme, but um, I think I think it's kind of similar to that that situation. So yeah, my the the Assyrian that uh, my my grandparents would have been exposed to would have been different from the Assyrian spoken today in the yeah. region, and they even had an older Bible translation which would have come from the the 19th century which is not really usable today. So we're trying to update it. And I mean, it's, it's starting from scratch. It's a new translation, which will be able to be understood by, by people who currently speak these languages. So you mentioned some of the challenges from COVID. What kind of, what other challenges are, are you facing at ABT or how else has COVID been disruptive? Well, yeah, COVID has prevented us from being able to go to the communities and, and travel. Uh, in person. So that's that's the primary issue. But because of technology like Zoom, uh, yeah. Skype, and Paratext, the translation software that we use, we can, the translations have not stopped. Uh, they're still taking place. And the, the translators are very committed uh, to these projects. So they, they have been able to continue with their work. Uh, so that hasn't really affected it. The ABT does have has experienced some funding issues. There's been uh, some turmoil with regards to that, and so we appreciate any pr- prayer for that specifically. Um, that would be very helpful for us. But that's that's our biggest challenge right now is uh, is overcoming that. Yeah, and here at uh, Lutheran Bible Translators, we're proud to be partnering with uh, ABT on uh, on the work here. And I think one of the reasons for that is it's a good opportunity for American Christians to embrace that the mission field is is all over the world, but it is here in our land as well, and gives us the opportunity to to work right here at home and to really look at mission more from a collegial perspective than the romantic view of missions. You mentioned, you know, these these folks have PhDs and things. So this whole, whole idea of going to help the poor people that can't, you know, or need our help is not not really in play <laughs> with what you're doing. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the work that that we do, it can be done remotely, but also we do need to have an impact in the local communities, yeah. and and so that I mean, it is is it it is a little challenging not having the classic mission experience with these projects. Okay, but I think that the involving the communities in in the translation itself and working with uh, translators overseas has helped us to to overcome that. But yeah, we still do have that challenge of, of not ha- being in the field uh, and right. able to to experience those felt needs firsthand and then have an impact in the culture. But we're thankful that we work with uh, individuals who, who grew up in those settings uh, and currently reside in, in the U.S. So when I say the head translator has a PhD and ha- has studied uh, these languages, they've actually been speaking that uh, they are a part of the community that this Absolutely. is their they work in their heart language so yeah, yeah it is uh, uh, more meaningful in in that sense to them and uh, i think that's that's very impactful also All right thinking about uh most of our listeners are are actually it's kind of expanding some but there are quite a few of our listeners yet are, are western christians what do you think that we can learn from the communities that make up the folks, you know, in ABT and their experience of Christian faith and mm-hmm. and so forth. Well, our project's goal is is to bring people to faith, and uh, there's many ways to to partner with ABT. 
through through prayer um, and uh, and I th- and just offering support. Um, I think uh, or communicating with us, it, it's it really helps us to improve morale. And but um, yeah, our goal is like many all maybe all I guess missions organizations. We're we're striving to bring people to faith. Yeah. Uh, translation, uh, in my opinion, is is the foundation of missions. And uh, by supporting translation, you're not just supporting the Bible translation projects, you're also supporting future missions organizations that will use the translation. Right. So um, so like producing movies, like you would have uh, something like the Jesus film, uh, it requires a, a Bible translation project before it, it can be made. So yes, yeah, so by supporting a, a Bible translation project such as ABT, you're also supporting additional scripture engagement projects. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely worthwhile a worthwhile cause in my opinion, and rather than than going overseas, like you mentioned, the mission field uh, is throughout the United States. And while we ha- we can see, I, I remember when I uh, went to church in in uh, in Tampa, our church had a sign up that would say, "You are now entering the mission field." Uh, when we would leave the parking lot, yeah. and I I think that. You know that's very true. So not only do Americans have this opportunity to support uh, overseas missions uh, themselves in many different ways, but there is the diaspora in the United right. States itself and uh, refugees all over uh, Europe who are coming from these areas that can be supported by prayer and uh, financial support for, uh, for ABT. It makes a, an impact throughout the world. So you've been on quite a journey at the beginning. You described, uh, you know, that first role with uh, the Peace Corps and then uh, some other stops in Africa along the way and now here. What gives you joy in your work as you reflect on what you're able to do and, yeah, the, the task that God sets before you? Well, for this, for the, the role that I have now uh, as executive director, I find joy in, in just being provided the, the chance to contribute in a small way to the projects to to projects that my ancestors may have held dear yeah. um, and and i i still hold dear today because of that um, but just being able to contribute in in my small way as as uh, a servant to the the organization uh brings me joy but uh in the past um my my true joy was from when we were living overseas was uh, experiencing other cultures and yeah. and uh I mean, it was just exciting uh, being able to to go off on uh, on on trips and uh, and speak with people and hopefully make an impact in people's lives. But primarily, just getting to know them, getting to know their culture. I, I love living in other cultures. It, it's something that's really exciting for me. And uh, I think my kids, uh, my family, really enjoyed their time in, in Mound and and living uh, in in Mound, Botswana, in particular. That area was was really a wonderful place to to raise a family and to live, um, because we had we had a great culture that we were immersed in, but we also had these uh, interesting things we could do on on the weekend. Um, we could just drive off and and go on safari essentially. Yeah, it's wonderful to be able to see and experience God's creation, both uh, you know the the wildlife and so forth, but but more importantly, the great diversity of uh, mm-hmm. people and uh, backgrounds and cultures and languages and expressions of faith, and to see how God is at work in so many you know unexpected ways. It's a it's it really is a privilege to have that kind of experience. Yes, 
definitely. All right. Well, Rob, I want to thank you for your time today. We've been talking with Rob Hilbert, the Executive Director of Aramaic Bible Translation and a missionary with Lutheran Bible Translators. We're, again, privileged to be in partnership with you and look forward to fruitful ministry and for God's Word to go out mightily in the ABT communities. Thank you very much, Rich, for this opportunity to speak with you, and it was my pleasure for being here. It's always amazing to see how God is at work and orchestrating things and and putting them together. So here you have these languages. Uh, Some of the names of the languages are names that you even read in the Bible, and these are descendants of folks that you hear about in the Old Testament. And now, you know, thousands of years later, also a a long time ago, some of the earliest Christians, but now uh, a couple thousand years later, renewing their interest in God's word. And then for a little bit, sort of drifting along and and looking for a new leader. Aramaic Bible Translation comes to LBT and says, can you help us out with this? I said, you know, I've got this guy, Rob. He's transitioning out of some work. Bring him in and and talk a little bit about it. And these are the people that he comes from. (laughs) They're his people. And it's just just amazing how God orchestrates those things and and just shows me evidence in any ways that God is – at work in mission and, and bringing all things together. Yeah, and I'm just so encouraged to hear about how passionate the teams are to translate the Bible into their languages. It's just it's really exciting to see how, you know, God is at work and there are exciting things on the horizon for ABT Aramaic Bible translators for those of you out there who are not connected. You can learn how you can put God's word in their hands when you visit lbt.org/aramaic. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. You can find past episodes of the podcast at lbt.org slash podcast or subscribe on Audible, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators' social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. The Essentially Translatable podcast is produced and edited by Andrew Olson and distributed by Sarah Lyons. Executive producer is Emily Wilson. Podcast artwork was designed by Caleb Rodewald. Music written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Radowski. So long for now. <laughs>